Great to be with you this morning. I'm Tim Jacobs, as was uh, said earlier. What, what a beautiful job that the worship team did this morning, that the, uh, the new wine, the new, the new adventures, the new thoughts that God has for us. Uh, I work with the Evangelical Free Church of America, of which you, Cornerstone, are a part. And they call me a regional director, district superintendent of what's called EFCA West, which is a region that spans about 200 congregations or so, so spread out over about seven states in, in the West. And so it's great to be with you. You know, when people hear evangelical free, they often think that it means free of evangelicals, right? Kind of like gluten-free or sugar-free. And sometimes that's the reason why people show up because they go, oh, finally, a church with no evangelicals, you know, it's what I've been waiting for. And maybe you got on the website and, and maybe you saw it was evangelical free and maybe that's why you're here. But if that's the case, I, um, I hate to break it to you. I have bad news for you. That's not what it means at all. In fact, the word evangelical just simply means messenger of good news. That's all it is. It has nothing to do with your political party. It has nothing to do with even being an American. It simply means that you are a messenger of good news, the good news that Jesus Christ has come down to, the, to this earth to separate us from that which is killing us, which is our sin. And if I can get separated from that which is killing me, that means I have life. And as Jesus says, have it more abundantly. And that's an amazing thing. And so if you're even an evangelical, all you are is a messenger of that good news to everyone around you. And the free part just means that you as a local church, are, you have the freedom to govern your own affairs under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You are an autonomous church. But that also means that you have the responsibility as a local church here to do everything you can and to figure out the best way possible to reach Prescott and the surrounding communities with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the good news. So that actually makes the passage of Scripture that we're going to talk about today even more important. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to James uh, chapter 2, starting with verse 14. Now, as you're turning there, this is one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. So thanks, Pastor Scott, for, as my kids would say, dipping and leaving the responsibility of this to me. But no, you guys have a fantastic pastor, by the way. I've gotten to know Scott a little bit, and we were hanging out recently. And I just, I, I love his heart. He loves you. He, he loves this church, and he is so dedicated to, to truth and to the gospel, and to the mission. And um, so it's a joy to be able to, to be here and to, to occupy uh, his place today. But as you're turning there, the, the, the reason why this passage is so controversial, it can be kind of summed up in the big idea for today, which is basically this. You ready? Faith works. That's it. Faith works. In other words, saving faith, the kind of faith that's authentic, that's real, that's true, that's verifiable, requires doing right things, not merely not doing wrong things. It's the kind of faith that is genuine and it's characterized by actions and works and even adventures and risks. So even in the subtitle of the series, 
The adventure of life. Life is supposed to be an adventure. And part of that is is characterized by the things that we do, not merely just trying to go through life, avoiding doing the wrong thing. It is the difference between playing to win and playing not to lose. And so the reason I think this is important as well is because there's something that as Christians I think we have to acknowledge. And, And that is that as we grow in our faith and as we mature and we learn more, we tend to be people who start to theologize. We start to process and we start to think. And that's not bad, but that can sometimes be a substitute for the bold actions that maybe we used to take when our faith was really fresh. And instead of bringing hope and healing that's tangible in a real world, we tend to step out and go, well, let's think about this for a minute. And so over time, it can become very easy for us to become armchair Christians, color commentators, as opposed to the players on the field that God wants us to be. One of the ways that I think the groups and ideologies that are out there, that are very prevalent in society right now and very loud in society right now, one of the reasons they gain so much ground is that they often do provide help that is tangible. And when you're hungry, and you're really hungry, you don't really care where the food comes from. And so we're challenged with this. So as we read this, we're going to see how James drives home the point that faith works. And as we read this, let's discover how we ourselves can maybe be reignited or rekindled to the adventurous life that God wants us to live. So let's check this out. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So the answer, the question we're going to answer today, it's very simple, is this. Why are works so important to my faith? I mean, is it really that? Because I thought we were saved by grace through faith. So why is works so important to my faith. Why are they? And there's three reasons, and the first one is this. Because a workless faith is a worthless faith. So he gives an example of someone who's poor and and lacking in food, right? Now, if you're like me and you come across a person like this, and I'll just be honest, like, this is how I am. My first response is, well, you know, why is that person poor in the first place, right? Like, what decisions have they made that brought them to the place that they are? And maybe, you know, maybe they should take a Dave Ramsey financial peace class, right? Or stop playing so many video games, right? And what am I doing? When I'm having those thoughts, and I see someone in need like that, and I have those thoughts, what am I doing? I'm thinking, I'm theologizing, I'm processing, and I'm doing nothing. Now, that's not to say that we just throw money out to anyone and everyone, but the example that James gives is a person in the church, a brother or a sister, someone that you would know who finds themselves in a position that they can't get out of, whatever the reason may be. And you have the ability to help. But instead of that, he he says, you know, just go ahead and and be warm, be well-fed, go on your way. And what's especially egregious about that statement is that it was a Hebrew farewell and blessing. It's something that the ancient Hebrews would, would say to each other a lot, like as a, as a blessing. And so 
And this is what you're saying to send someone away. So not only are they being dismissed, but they are being dismissed under the cover of a religious platitude. You know what our modern day equivalent of that is? You ready for this? I'll pray for you. Oh, right? Isn't that what we do? You know, you got a guy in the church who says, yeah, you know, man, I just got laid off from my job because of COVID. And I'm telling you, it's going to be hard for us to make ends meet. We're doing everything we can. I have 50 resumes out to every company, but my industry has been crushed because of this pandemic. And you go, wow, man, I'll be praying for you. I'll be praying for you. Like, when did that phrase become an acceptable thing to say in the face of an actual need that someone is facing? When did that sneak into our Christian culture as an acceptable response? When you're in a position to help a person with an actual need and you use a Christianese statement to deflect from actually offering help, James says your faith is worthless. It's like, whoa. And when you really think about this, and, and again, like, Whenever I preach, speak anywhere, I always want the scripture to run through me before I give it to anyone else. And so I was thinking about this, and it's so incidental in nature, because we often think about the grandiose things that people do. But it's so in the everyday. So I'll give you an example. My wife and I have friends who are moving, and they sold their house recently, and they've got to be out by the 30th of this month, which is like Tuesday, right? And these are like, they're great people, but man, in the midst of it all, they just, they kind of got overwhelmed. I mean, they've, and, and there's a lot of stresses of life and this, this pandemic and all the other stuff going on in the world. And they just, a lot of details, right? And they've been in their house for like 16 years. And you accumulate a lot of stuff in 16 years. And so they got to get out now. And they were getting super stressed. So my wife calls me on Friday and she says, hey, Tim, you know, they're having a hard time. Can you come over for like an hour and help? Well, yeah, right, right. Have you ever helped someone move for an hour? It's, it's like 10 hours, Right. And so I'm like, fine, you know, so I go over there and I kid you not, it was like, it was like five or six hours, but the whole time, well, almost the whole time while I'm there in my mind, I'm thinking, I do not have time for this. I am so busy. I have got to get ready for this sermon. I'm preaching in Prescott on how faith without works is dead. And if you don't help people, you have a worthless faith. I don't have time to help these people that are in need. I literally was thinking that. And I went, oh. Uh-oh. I mean, I'm telling you, like, I, I thought to myself, I am a walking contradiction. Now you say, come on, Tim. That's, but it was, it's a real example because these are people in a real need and they needed help at that moment. And it was almost like, you know what, Jacobs? You're going to have to take a risk of your time not having enough to do something that God wants you in this moment to do. So not only is a workless faith a worthless faith, the second reason works are important to faith is because faith and works are completely inseparable. Now check out what he says here. Now this again is one of the most difficult, you read the people that write about this stuff, they say this is one of the most difficult passages in all of the scripture to um, interpret. Verse 18, it says this. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So what has James done? Well, James has created like this imaginary person who's arguing with him. You ever do that? 
Maybe you have a little voice in your head. You know, you have an idea, and they're like, yeah, but what about this? And that person doesn't exist, but you, you kind of set them up as an as a opposition side. And this is what it's a literary thing that he's doing to say, well, what about this? But what's weird about this is if we go back, the way he says it is, but some will say, you have faith and I have deeds. If the person was actually arguing, it would be switched. It would be like, you have deeds, but I have faith. You're arguing for works, but I have faith. So it's like, well, why does he say it like that? Why does he say, you have faith and I have deeds, as though he's arguing with James? And so when you read about this, and they have all these different ideas. And then there's the whole issue of quotation marks, because you don't really have quotation marks in the original language. So they kind of add them later, assuming it's where they go. And so there's different of opinion on where the quotations go. So what do you do with this? Well, of everything that I read, the thing that makes the most sense is what he's basically saying is there's a guy who's trying to separate. His imaginary friend is trying to separate faith and deeds by basically saying, hey, one person has faith, one person has deeds. And James says, no, you can't separate those, which is why he says, uh, show me your faith without deeds, which you cannot do. You, can, you cannot show me your faith unless it's actually manifested in action. It's impossible. So if you try to separate them, you, you can't do that. I'll show you my faith by what I do. And so you cannot split them up. They are two sides of the same coin. So then when he moves on and he says, you believe that there is one God, good, even the demons blue. So the, the idea of one God goes back to, in Deuteronomy 6.4, what's known as the Shema, which is the confession of the true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that was the statement that we don't believe in any of these other, other uh, idols or anything else. We believe in the true God in Yahweh. And so the Jewish Christians would have known that, like, you know, wrote, right? And it would be like the contemporary way of today of just saying, I believe in Jesus. You know, I believe in the Trinity. And, and James like, great. That's, that's a great starting point. I mean, I'm glad you do. But even the demons believe that. <laughs> but when the demons believe it, when the demons think about it, when the demons come to grips with it, they shudder. And the word shudder in the original language is the word um, frizzo. And it's kind of one of those words that kind of means like what it sounds. So it's frizzo, almost like frazzled, like freaked out. They freak out. So James is saying, hey, even the demons believe in one God, and it freaks them out, which means they have a reaction to it, which is kind of more than I can say for you guys at the moment. So, I mean, he's just really digging into them right now. But that's the whole idea, is you cannot separate these. So if a person just simply says, well, no, I believe, it doesn't matter what I do, James, that doesn't even make sense. It's, a, it's like a walking contradiction. It's like saying my brother is an only child, you know. The minute you say it, it doesn't make sense. So works are then inseparable from faith. So finally, the third reason that works are so important to faith is because works actually vindicate my faith. In other words, they prove it. So um, in in verse 20, which by the way, verse 20 isn't on there, so I'll just read it. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, which is so funny. It's like, thanks, James. You foolish person. Um, that faith apart from works is useless. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. 
So hang on to that. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person, now this is huge by the way, right here. This is like, this is one of the really controversial verses in all of the New Testament at least. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Ooh, that's a big deal. In the same way was not, and then he offers Rahab, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. So here's what we got to do. And, and by the way, this is, this is your memory verse, by the way. Your memory verse, because every week you got, what's that so cool that Scott does? That? Like, no, I, I don't know a lot of pastors that do that. He really wants you to get the word in. So he's like, Tim, make sure they get a memory verse. Great. This is it. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And can I be honest? Like, again, that lame example I gave on Friday, like when I was tired and I was hot because I lived in, you know, the desert and it was like brutally hot and I'm picking up stuff and I'm like, why am I doing this? This was, this was in my brain. And I was like, all right, here we go. Faith without works is dead. Come on. Come on. You know? But anyway, here's the thing we got to contend with, though. He just said... You see a person is justified by their works and not by faith alone. Well, that's a problem, right? Because if you know the Bible at all, you know a guy named the Apostle Paul came around and said in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, a person is justified by faith and not works of the law. Now, this is the big deal because as you go into your community groups and you talk about this and you read the scripture for yourself, you might get snagged on this and go, wait a second. James is saying that you're justified by your works and not by your faith alone. And then Paul is saying you're justified by faith and not by works of the law. So which is it? Well, the answer can actually be, this whole thing can be untangled pretty easily. And it's in the usage of the word justification. The bottom line is Paul and James use the word justification differently. When Paul talks about justification, he's talking about the once for all action that God does to us upon our faith in him. So you realize your eyes are open. The spirit of God regenerates you, brings you from death to life, opens your eyes. You see, holy cow, Jesus has, has traded places with me on the, uh, on the cross. I should have been on that cross. And he took my sin and I, I'm bl- I, I don't have to be responsible for that. And your eyes are open. And the Bible says that when you have faith in that, in that message, and that happens, you are declared righteous by God. That's what justification is as Paul uses it. Declared righteous by God once for all at the beginning of your conversion, right? At the beginning of your Christian life. And it has nothing to do with works, The way James uses justification, though, is saying that your works justify or vindicate or demonstrate, illustrate, manifest, prove that your faith was there in the first place. So that's the the way to untangle that. So people get hung up on that. You don't need to get hung hung up on that. Because they're using justification in different ways, but they're both saying the same thing. And how do we know? We simply look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, where Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, right? So you're not saved by works. It's a gift of God by faith. But check this out. So that no one can boast. But then look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I'm saved by grace through faith, but I'm saved so that I might do good works 
I might actually kick a dent in this broken, fallen world. I actually might leave a mark and make a difference. And God prepared me to do these things. So you see, it fits together perfectly and beautifully. In fact, what James is saying is that the works complete the faith. That the works bring it, your faith, to a a place where it can actually reach its intended goal. The very reason it was there in the first place was so that you could do things that radiate the glory of God throughout your life. This is so huge in so many ways. So why are works important to my faith? Well, because a workless faith is a worthless faith, because the two are inseparable, and even more than that, works vindicate or justify my faith. So faith works. So what do we do with this? Well, one of the great privileges that I have, in addition to my role with the district, is I get to, I've served for the last almost seven years as a chaplain in the United States Air Force Reserve. And I absolutely love it. I'm at Luke Air Force Base right now, and it's just a joy to be able to do that. And one of the things a few years ago that they were doing Air Force-wise, they were trying to always combat like sexual assault and violence and all. So I always have these trainings, right? Maybe if you're in the military, you know what I'm talking about. And, and it's a lot of times like, really? Come on, guys. I mean, it's all this stuff. But this one they had was actually really good. And it was called Green Dot, the Green Dot Program. And all it basically was was the idea that, you know, they said, hey, guys, if you can just like draw a green dot around yourself. And where, wherever you are, that needs to be like a realm or a zone where there's no violence, where there's no evil. And so if you're in a place where you see something, you're that green dot, you can go in and intervene. So they teach you tactics on intervening and de-escalation and all that kind of stuff in social settings so that you can be a force for good wherever you are. And I thought, man, that's really cool. Except you know what? If God can get himself some good lawyers, he could sue the pants off these green dot people for copyright infringement. Because God came up with that a long time ago. And it was something called the kingdom. The kingdom of God. Jesus introduced it. The kingdom of God is exactly that. The kingdom of God is a realm, is a zone. That when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you occupy that zone. And that zone is a place, as a guy named Alan Hirsch said to be a place that's a zone of justice, peace, and love as examples. So wherever you are as a person, this is where God's rules are followed. His rules are obeyed. His ways are the ways that you live by. So wherever you are, that's your zone. That's what you do. That's what happens. So the challenge for us today is how do I respond to this? Well, simply this. I draw a kingdom dot around myself and tend it. Draw a kingdom dot. Because if you're a believer in Jesus, you, have a, you, have, you, you are a member of the kingdom of God, and so your, your job is to make that kingdom, make God's rules known in the world by how you live and what you do. So in your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood, here's, you know, you ready for this? Everybody wants to change the world, right? Everyone, we're going to change the world. I go, really? I mean, no offense, but come on. Like, that's so easy to say. We're change the world. Anybody can say that. Can, you, can I give you a little bit of advice? Don't change the world. It's so big. Don't focus on that. Can you, can you focus on like, don't even change Prescott. Change your street. Change your office. Change your school. Like, oh, that's really hard. Oh, yeah, it's really hard because it's local, baby. And yeah, it actually matters. Like the stuff, right? You can measure it, so it's a little harder. Draw a kingdom dot around yourself and tend it. And, and, and focus on the micro. 
Forget the macro right now. God will handle that. But if you focus on the micro, take responsibility for the zone that you live in, for the realm that you live in, and say, you know, where I am, where I am, I'm going to work to show mercy. I'm going to work to show love. And so, to help you, you know, people will say things like, you know, I was born for this, or I was made for this. What I want you to do to help you and be real specific and, and talk about this in your community groups, and I'm really interested to hear how you would, how you would um, finish this sentence. I want you to finish this sentence. I was saved so that. People are like, I was born so that I could do this. I was made so I could do this. And some of you have that real clear. I want you to think, I was saved so that. Because a lot of times for Christians, I think it's like, I was saved. Oh, that's great. No, 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 no. Ephesians just said, you were saved so that you could what? Hey, I was saved so that I could write stuff on Facebook? Nah, that's a bad answer. I was saved so that I could lock myself in my house and live in fear? Nah, that's a bad answer. I was saved so that I could be mad at the world? Mm, I don't think that's why you were saved. I don't think that's why. Maybe I was saved so that I could put God's goodness on display. Maybe I was saved so that I could take some crazy risks. So people go, man, that, she really must believe in God because nobody does that kind of stuff. I was saved so that more people could be in heaven. I was saved so that hungry people would be fed, hurting people would be healed. Lonely people would be comforted. I was saved that vulnerable people, vulnerable people could be protected. A guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian, brilliant guy, was part of the plot to kill Adolf Hitler in World War II, and sadly it failed. And because of that, he was caught and eventually executed. But he wrestled a lot with the idea of what do you do? You know, when you have something in front of you, do you, do you act? Do you, do you have a bias for action or do you just go, well, I don't want to be accused of sinning or doing anything wrong. So I'm just going to lay back. And he wrestled with this a lot. So a guy named Eric Metaxas wrote a brilliant biography on, on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And it's, it's thick, huge. And if you have a chance to read it, you really should. But he, he gives a lot of Bonhoeffer quotes. And in it, one of the things that, one of my favorite quotes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer is this. He says this. Listen to this. Daring to do what is right. Valiantly grasping occasions. Not cravenly doubting. Not cravenly doubting. Freedom comes only through deeds, not through thoughts taking wing. Faint not nor fear, but go out to the storm and the action, trusting in God whose commandment you faithfully follow. Freedom, exultant, will welcome your spirit with joy. He lived by that thought, and he died by that thought. You know, I'm going to be a player. And I may not get it all right all the time, but I'm gonna, I'm, I'd rather move than not. I'd rather go than stay. I'd rather have the wheel turning than just be in neutral. So my friends, faith works. And our, word, our world desperately needs to not only hear that, but see that. Prescott needs to see that more than ever. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you're saying, you know what? I want to know this Jesus who traded places with me. I want to finally embrace something that doesn't demand so much out of me, but a God who would give me grace. I just want to encourage you today, wherever you are, just to say, God, 
I believe that the one act that you did, you didn't stay idly by, but you acted. You stepped into the world and you took my sin, threw it all on the shoulders of Jesus so that I could be free. And so today I'm telling you, you know, I repent. I'm turning around. I'm surrendering. I give up trying to do things my own way. I give up my pride and my arrogance. God, would you rescue me so that my life might count for something eternal? Tell it to him right now. For the rest of us, if you've already made that decision, if you've already prayed that prayer, maybe you've been sitting, sitting idly by and you see all that's on the news and, and everything that's going on and you're so frustrated and angry and, and you, don't know how, you don't know what to do. God, would you help each one of us in that situation to think that maybe something is better than nothing. Give us wisdom in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for letting me be here with you today. If you prayed that prayer today, if you received the grace of Jesus, this church would love to hear from you. So please reach out. God bless.